So the Wall Street Journal did a deep dive on the search algorithms that um, Google uses um, and the widespread assumption that they are all just machines churning out the best possible search results uh, uh, and indicating that, in fact, a lot of them are I think the nicest word is curated, but there's quite a bit of human judgment that goes into those uh, algorithms. Uh, Klan, what what's the takeaway from that article? They talk about how Google engineers uh, make behind the scenes adjustments, tweaks to the algorithm and to the information that's surfaced in searches, and that they do that for a, a host of different reasons. All of these decisions, there can be a at least a rational explanation for, for many of them. The problem is, is that so many of these choices and so much of these of these details fly in the face of the public persona that the company continually puts out there. And where, you know, when Congress and others come to them and say, listen, you gotta be careful about this, you need to be smart about this, it's always, well, it's the algorithms. Yeah. And what we're discovering is is it's not just the algorithms, that there's there's quite a heavy hand on the till here. And, um, and the Wall Street Journal is showing that. Welcome to episode 288 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here do not reflect those of our principals, our organization, our clients, our families, our spouses, or our pets. Uh, uh, I'm joined today by Maurice Schenk, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, he's based in our London office. Maury, great to have you. Good to be here from London. All right. Uh, Matthew Hyman, Senior Fellow in the National Security Institute, uh, formerly with the National Security Division at DOJ. Matthew, great to have you here. Great to be here, Stuart. Okay. And Klon Kitchen, uh, Senior Fellow for Technology, National Security, and Science Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Klon, good to have you too. Always love it. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, we're going to do uh, This Week in Google because there's lots of stories about Google. And then we're just, just going to dig in on a bunch of law. So the Wall Street Journal did a deep dive on the search algorithms that um, Google uses um, and the widespread assumption that they are all just machines churning out the best possible search results uh, uh, and indicating that, in fact, a lot of them are, I think the nicest word is curated, but they're carefully jiggered, uh, often by hand or partially by hand, uh, that there's quite a bit of human judgment that goes into those uh, algorithms. Uh, Klan, what what's the takeaway from that article? Yeah, so this was a months-long effort at the Wall Street Journal. They did over 100 interviews with, with key folks. Uh, and they even did some uh, some of their own testing with Google's uh, search algorithms. And there's a couple of key takeaways. One, they concluded that the company makes algorithmic changes that benefit uh, larger businesses over smaller ones. Uh, that makes uh, that shouldn't be surprising in one sense in terms of their their the majority of their their uh, revenue is is advertising based. But then also they talk about how Google engineers uh, make behind the scenes adjustments, tweaks to the algorithm and to the information that's surfaced in searches, and that they do that for a, a host of different reasons. The, despite the kind of public persona of, uh, of Google really not being in the game of, of choosing winners and losers, they, they absolutely keep blacklists to remove certain sites and prevent others from surfacing uh, during certain types of search. Uh, their autocomplete function. So like when you go into the search bar and you start typing things out, you know how Google kind of predicts what you're looking for. Yep. Even that is shaped by uh, by the engineers and, and, and what should be returned. 
and and it even goes into some real differences of an opinion and, and of approach uh, within Google's executive team, even by its founders, uh, in terms of how Google would approach uh, search, how it would approach search returns, and uh, the way that they would talk about that thing publicly. So yeah, this this the 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 best story was the one where uh, search policy was determined at the urinal by uh, <laughs> uh, the CEO uh, Larry Page, uh, basically overriding uh, uh, Sergey Brin's uh, um, inclinations. The the bias toward large companies is explained as uh, aimed at making sure that these are responsible companies that are getting flagged, uh, uh, that their products are likely to actually have support, things like that. Those are the justifications, if I remember, that uh, that Google gives. Yeah, well, and, uh, um, and the, so that's the thing. is like all of these decisions, there can be a at least a rational explanation for, for many of them. So in terms of um, trying to prevent, uh, you know, some of the worst things on the internet from popping up on the, on the top of the list, even if it's one of the most popular uh, kind of searches or, or, or intended results, um, there's a rationale for that. The problem is, is that so many of these choices and so much of these, of these details fly in the face of the public persona that the company continually puts out there and where, you know, when Congress and others come to them and say, listen, you got to be careful about this. You need to be smart about this. It's always, well, it's the algorithms. Yeah. And what we're discovering is, is it's not just the algorithms that there's, there's quite a heavy hand on the till here. And, um, and the wall street journal is showing that. So the autocomplete thing I thought was interesting because I remember back in 2016 and, and when the campaign was really going, if you put in Hillary Clinton and you got an autocomplete, they were all completely anodyne things. You 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 didn't get uh, you know Hillary Clinton belongs in jail or any of the other things that I'm sure people were typing into their uh, search engines because somebody had decided this is contested turf and uh, there's a whole bunch of bad stuff being put into our autocomplete and we should go to plan B, which is only refer to certain kinds of uh, autocomplete results that are anodyne or established. They had a whole set of principles that uh, were facially neutral, but if you only did them for uh, Hillary and you didn't do them for Trump, Trump still belonged in jail and Hillary didn't. Uh, uh, and so that's the, the the real worry here is if you trust Google, none of this is a surprise or particularly troubling. But if you think that they have a left-leaning uh, workforce that will uh, uh, work the rules to stay within the letter of the rules, but to uh, uh, juice the content in a particular direction, then this is pretty troubling. Yeah. And so this this actually fits into a broader initiative that Google's been rolling out called AI Fairness that goes into this idea. So they've, they've been clear in some of their internal documents uh, about how if they feel like search results on a given issue are insufficiently complete or insufficiently fair, and whatever their determination of what fair is, then they will prioritize or weight certain results so that the conversation becomes more fair as it appears in, in their eyes. Right. This And this is uh, 
one of my big worries in all of these things is people uh, say, oh, the machine did that. And so you can't argue with it. But the machine did it only after it had been carefully tweaked to achieve a result that the uh, um, the lefty workforce that Google thinks is fair. Uh, and uh, we're going to see more of this. Actually, I'm, I'm hoping to get a couple of uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, machine learning experts on in the next couple of weeks. And we'll do a deep dive into uh, AI fairness. Uh, so that should be fun. Uh, okay. Uh, so Google uh, made more news. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, if I remember, and others uh, flagged Project Nightingale. Uh, Matthew, what is Project Nightingale? And is this a scandal or is this just uh, uh, a nothing burger waiting for the mayo? Uh, Project Nightingale is a partnership between Google and Ascension Healthcare, and Ascension Healthcare is a Catholic-oriented hospital network. I think it's got about 2,300 hospitals in its network in which Google has agreed with Ascension to host all of its medical record data on the cloud uh, with the promise of creating faster access to these patient records as doctors and treatment providers need them and also greater efficiencies in terms of delivering the treatment and probably you know additional revenue generation opportunities for uh, Ascension. So that's, that's what's going on. I don't think it's a scandal. Uh, Google announced it was doing this in their Q2 uh, disclosures. So long ago. Um, it was long ago. And also Google is one of several market participants in this space of trying to figure out how to make sense of hospital records, make them more efficient, uh, make them more useful for providers, uh, pharmacists, yeah. um, and pharmaceutical companies. So. I, I know a lot of people that got their nose out of joint and HHS announced that they were doing an investigation of Google, but they're fully within um, HIPAA based on everything that's been reported. It looks as though they, they stand, entered into the standard uh, a contract that yep. people who provide IT services to a health, ma uh, health provider would do. Or, uh, right. and, and so they have to protect the privacy and security of the data, yada, yada. Exactly. Now, I think what this does raise is a, a, a kind of a more general question about best practices when you're dealing with a nervous populace when it comes to privacy, and that is how much notice should Ascension have given to its patients and doctors. Right. Um, but there's not a legal violation, but there may have been sort of a um, customer relationship footfall. Yes, I, I, that that strikes me. But you know, look, when you're Google, uh, it's almost as bad as being Facebook. Everything is a footfall. If yeah. you do anything, it's a footfall. Uh, yeah. And this one, I mean, uh, there are problems with Google, but this probably is not one of them. And God knows, we need somebody to do a better job of uh, moving health data around and analyzing it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, and that last uh, Google story, Maury, uh, uh, the uh, Google has been beaten into submission by the EU in terms of the advertising categories that it's prepared to sell to people. And if I understand this, it is saying we're not going to sell uh, the opportunity to appear on certain kinds of sites that have certain kinds of content. Uh, is, is that uh, uh, where that shook out? Yeah, that's right. It, it also relates to health data. Just recently, I think last week, the Financial Times came out with a report describing Google's, they did quite a bit of research on use of cookies on the internet. 
it wasn't just Google, it was many companies, although Google's double-click business was by far the leader. And they found out that lots of data on people's use of, of uh, health websites was being shared through cookies mm -hmm. because advertisers could see that such and such a person had visited a health website and went and had an idea of what they were interested in and could sell them relevant stuff. Very quickly thereafter, Google has announced, uh, apparently after a discussion with national data protection authorities, in, the, in various EU countries, that they're going to stop selling ads based upon have visits to certain kinds of sites, including health sites. And this is, it's also a, a health consent issue, but it's different in the EU because we now under GDPR have uh, elevated consent rules for cookies. And most of this was being done by cookies. So I think there was a pretty good argument that for sensitive data like health data, the consent requirements are, are elevated. And there's a good argument that what Google and other websites like Facebook and others were doing um, with health data was probably not legal. So if you're looking for data about a particular health condition you have, the EU doesn't want you to get it via advertising. Well, they don't want you... You can go to a website and get information, yes, but but not be sold products based upon it unless you have consented explicitly to use of cookies for this purpose. Okay. All right. Uh, so that is the week in Google. Right? Um, a, a, I, I, I hope the audience will indulge me while as a DHSer, I, uh, uh, I ascribe some significance to the recent Massachusetts federal district court decision um, restricting for the first time really uh, uh, border searches of phones uh, and uh, uh, exactly how this will shake out uh, is still a little bit up in the air. But uh, Matthew, what was the, uh, the ruling? Uh, the ruling was that um, the approach used by ICE and CBP uh, at primarily airports in the case of these 11 plaintiffs mm -hmm. was to conduct two kinds of search of electronic devices, so phones, iPads, and whatnot. They had a basic search where they said you don't need to have any basis for the search, and then they would do something called an advanced search, which required – um, reasonable suspicion to run the search. And that took a while, right? You, they basically were surrendering your device that might go away yep. for two weeks. They'd hook it up to a, a Celebrate device or something and dig deep into things you had deleted, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly right. And so um, that was the structure in which uh, CBP and ICE were running these searches. Uh, the, the ACLU, on behalf of these 11 plaintiffs, brought a lawsuit uh, and some of these plaintiffs experienced that advanced search, and there was no uh, reasonable suspicion for it. Uh, where the court came down is it went through the usual uh, sort of structure of Fourth Amendment uh, jurisprudence, which said, you know, there's a warrant requirement under the Fourth Amendment, but then there are some exceptions, and they recited the normal ones where exigent circumstances or uh, searches subject to arrest or border searches search. at the border. And then the court went on to say, but um, but Riley, right? <laughs> but, but exactly, the border search is not limited or limitless. Uh, exception is not limitless, and we've got this case called Riley, which is the Supreme Court case from 2013, which 
for the first time said, you've got certain levels of Fourth Amendment protection in your mobile phone uh, at the time of your arrest. Right. So uh, basically, there's a mobile phone exception to all the Fourth Amendment exceptions. Uh, we're, because there's so much stuff on your phone, we're going to give it special protection. Exactly. And so where the court came down is it sort of came down in the middle. The plaintiffs wanted a warrant requirement for searching uh, electronic devices coming through the border. And the court said no. Uh, what the court said is whether you're doing a basic search or an advanced search, you need to articulate a reasonable suspicion. Which is for not too doing. hard usually. It's, well, it's, it's, it's not uh, very hard uh, except what the court said. It has to be reasonable suspicion that there's contraband on the phone. Right. Uh, sure. Uh, child pornography is contraband. But otherwise, nobody is smuggling dope on their phone uh, unless they really are uh, a heavy consumer. And so having a reasonable suspicion that somebody has child porn by looking at them kind of be a little hard by looking at where they've traveled. Maybe you think some people coming back from Bangkok, right, yeah. they have that problem. But uh, I think that's probably pushing it. So um, – the, to my mind, that could have a major impact on uh, uh, border searches, except for this. There are two reasons to do border searches. Uh, one is somebody has contraband. They're bringing in something they shouldn't bring in. And the other is they shouldn't be allowed in because they are dangerous people, folks you don't want to have here. That's the who as opposed to the what. Yeah. Uh, all of that, you know, it just – it would not take a, a lot of work to find a reasonable suspicion that this might not be somebody we want to have come into the country. Uh, and the reason the court didn't touch on that is all of these plaintiffs are U.S. citizens or green card holders. Exactly. And so the court dodged that issue. If you could have reasonable suspicion that this is somebody we shouldn't let in, obviously you, you can't deny U.S. citizens the right to come in, um, then maybe it's not so bad because there's lots of ways to come up with reasonable suspicion that this particular person is worth looking at. I think that's right. Uh, and so it'll, this will certainly wend its way through the courts because there's, this is now created oh, yeah, this a split. Is bound bound and, for appeal. And, and, the, and so, the judge was careful not to do a nationwide injunction yeah, or anything like that. Yeah. I think um, you know, if, even if you view this as a wrongheaded decision, to me, this was a good prudential approach to uh, adjudicating these kinds of cases and that you took a relatively limited stance. And as you said, Stuart, there's no nationwide injunction and you allow it to proceed through the courts so it gets resolved appropriately. Okay. In relatively late breaking news, the Supreme Court has granted certiorari in uh, Google versus Oracle. This is a fight over uh, APIs uh, and uh, uh, the Android system. Uh, when Oracle released the Linux code that they uh, uh, sold it to uh, uh, Google. They didn't sell the APIs, the uh, programming interfaces uh, that are essential to connect up applications to operating systems. Uh, uh, 
most people thought they didn't sell them because there was nothing to sell because they were uh, in the public domain effectively. But Oracle, after they uh, – I think they, they bought Sun. Sun had sold this, uh, this stuff. They realized that they hadn't sold those particular things. Oracle said, we can make a lot of money uh, uh, claiming a copyright violation here. Uh, they sued Google. Google said, are you kidding? Everybody thinks these should be uh, – this is fair use. These are not copyrightable. Uh, uh, the entire computer programming economy we have won't work if you can claim intellectual property in the APIs because that's how a variety of different systems talk to each other uh, uh, written by different companies. Uh, that issue has been kicking around at least 15, 20 years. Um, Supreme Court – split 4-4 when they looked at this last time in a Borland against Lotus, I think, uh, uh, case. Um, court has taken this. They are going to address it. Uh, as a Supreme Court watcher, uh, I would say this is very bad news for uh, uh, Oracle because the Solicitor General was asked for their views, came in and said, no, no, court, you don't need to worry your pretty little head about this. Uh, let this one go. I, uh, maybe someday there'll be a case where this issue comes up, but it's not this one. Uh, court took the case anyway. So over the advice of the Solicitor General uh, a, and in a case where Oracle had won, that usually means they think pretty good chance that the decision below was wrong and they wrong enough that it needs to be resolved by the uh, uh, the court. So um, my money is on Google in this case. Hong Kong, uh, a Hong Kong court issued an injunction against uh, using the internet for violent and uh, uh, inciting speech. Um, and the uh, uh, Internet Society of Hong Kong is pretty unhappy. Uh, uh, Maury, should they, are they right to be unhappy? Well, it's, it's unusual times. The injunction, which was first issued on late October and was amended just a few days ago, is not that broad on its face. It has to do with willfully distributing or republishing via an internet platform, and it specifically mentions Telegram and LIHKG, which are uh, um, pop, which is a popular site in Hong Kong, material that's intended to encourage violence and is intended or likely to cause bodily injury or property damage within Hong Kong. That's pretty specific. And you could probably, you know, it's almost like fighting words. It might pass First Amendment scrutiny in the United States. Right. But in, in China, this is a, um, you know, in the current situation in Hong Kong, this is a controversial thing. There is worries that it will be used in a very broad way to prohibit any communications that's being used to assemble these protests. Well, if you took if you took the European view, so you have to take it down within an hour, or you can't even let it go up at all, or, or will uh, bankrupt your company. Uh, you could get a lot of overcompliance. Yeah, and that's the worry. And I think the broader, you know, question. Uh, background is Hong Kong is outside the Great Firewall and the Chinese censorship system. Is this a step using the Hong Kong judiciary to start moving towards that? Um, it's not a huge step that direction, but that's what people in Hong Kong are certain to be worried about. 
So I, of all the things that people in Hong Kong have to worry about, this does not seem to me to be high on the list, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that is um, happening over there that's uh, likely to extend the, the People's Republic of China's um, influence over Hong Kong uh, and maybe much more dramatically. Speaking of China, uh, the National Association of Manufacturers announced that uh, they had had an intrusion from a hacker uh, that they attributed to uh, the Chinese government. Uh, they didn't tell us who was their forensic uh, uh, firm that helped them arrive at that. Uh, um, a, but uh, that's the um, uh, that's the accusation, Klan. This doesn't strike me as completely surprising. Uh, they're not stealing intellectual property, but they are trying to figure out what what the U.S. Uh, position is going to be in uh, the current negotiations over trade barriers, aren't they? Yeah, I am shocked to learn that the Chinese are conducting industrial <laughs> espionage. Uh, look, th this 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 is a a known Ch Chinese APT. Uh, the National Association of Manufacturers (NAM) says. Uh, you know, it happened this summer. There's some suspicion uh, that this is in direct support to the ongoing trade negotiations between China and the United States. Uh, they they make the assessment on the Chinese origin of the attack based on some uh, tools and some techniques that have been previously associated with Chinese APTs. I suspect that that that's largely correct. You know, now Nam says their their networks are completely secure. Even if that's the case, we have to understand that. It's not only NAM, no. right? I mean, it's going to be major corporations. It's going to be other associations. It's going to be individual companies. The reality is, is that China has a demonstrated capability and intent to gather any and all information that they can and to support a whole host of state initiatives, not just the trade war. Yeah. But the key difference here, the, the, the kind of for years, this has been a, a mechanism where you just kind of hoover up information and hope that you're able to use it one day. The key distinction that I think listeners should understand now is that we've actually entered the realm where the computational capability is there to actually start realizing the benefits of all this collected information. So China, with its uh, AI and, and ML, uh, machine learning capabilities and, and the like, they've got enough data out there and they've got enough computational strength to where they can start realizing material benefit from all of this information that they've gathered over the last you know, two to three decades. Okay, so they could put together a, a basically an America wiki uh, uh, that that allows them to dive deep on any political or economic player in the U.S. Uh, and to look at their internal uh, communications or what have you. At the very least, they're going to be far more informed than they have been previously without this information. This has been coming a while, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it's here. Uh, here's something else where the, the question is, are we going to fight reality or not? Uh, uh, Maury, a uh, federal judge has, has ruled that um, the Trump administration can't settle a lawsuit over 3D gun printing uh, recipes. Uh, a, a, the, uh, this is a long-running uh, uh, set of rules. Uh, there are export controls on guns uh, and designs for guns. Uh, the uh, State Department 
applied those rules and said 3D printing recipes can't be used to, um, can't be uh, published because that's exporting and therefore uh, we're going to tell you uh, these 3D gun uh, uh, designs uh, must be kept off the internet. Uh, uh, they were sued by the people who uh, produced those uh, recipes uh, and uh, uh, defended the litigation right up into the Trump administration and then settled by uh, deciding they were going to give up. They were going to enter into a consent decree. They were going to allow the publication of the uh, um, uh, the plans, uh, mainly in response to a First Amendment claim. Uh, uh, there's been a switch from left to right in this case. It used to be uh, it was the left that said, oh, you know, code is speech, and uh, uh, it's a First Amendment violation to restrict the publication of code. Uh, um, but that was when the code was crypto. Now, when it's 3D gun parts, it's the right that is saying that. Uh, um, Trump administration bowed to that uh, uh, line of analysis and got sued by five to ten attorneys general uh, saying, we don't think that it was um, uh, permissible to settle that case by changing your export control policy. Uh, and remarkably, they got a, a court to agree with them. So uh, I don't know, Maury, uh, um, this strikes me as uh, when the court says it's arbitrary and capricious to stop trying to regulate something that almost certainly can't be regulated, the idea that, that, that we were having any impact at all by saying, don't put that on the internet, strikes me as um, bizarre. And therefore, uh, it's not arbitrary and capricious to recognize reality. But uh, that's obviously the uh, not what the court said. Yeah. I mean, I thought of the same thing that it reminded me of the Zimmerman PGP litigation, you know, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And at that time, encryption was also regulated as a weapon. Yes. It's a fairly similar issue. I being more lefty, of course, um, as you pointed out, applaud more the, the regulation of gun content than encryption content. But you can't avoid recognizing the similarity of the issue. It reminded me there's a great book by William Gibson called The Peripheral, where if a society manages to regulate another society through just an information interface. And I was thinking that it managed to control another society. And as our society increasingly dematerializes, you know, just information about stuff is going to become more and more important. So you, it didn't used to be you could distribute a gun just with information. Now you can. And I think this is going to come up in a lot of contexts, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty important issue. It is, and and it would be it would be great to have some sort of idea about uh, can we determine the kind of information that we want to have shaping our society, but we're not going to do it with export controls. Probably not. Okay, let's do a few quick hits and uh, 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 call it a wrap. Uh, um, <laughs> Maury, I, uh, there was a DDoS attack, uh, mostly on the Labor Party, partly on the Tories, uh, 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 which um, at least uh, uh, Labor said this was a sophisticated attack uh, by somebody bad. Um, it, it sounds like it was just a DDoS attack of the kind that you could probably rent for 50 bucks if you wanted to have a short uh, a DDoS attack. Am I wrong about that? Is this just uh, some bogus effort to gin up a, uh, uh, a campaign issue or was there really a serious attack on labor? 
Well, the attacks didn't take down any websites. Um, oh, God. They weren't okay. attributed to anybody. Um, presumably, these uh, both Labor and the Tories had subscribed to Cloudflare or some similar service. And the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK came out and said, well, this is a well-known kind of attack. There are known defenses. And they worked. So uh, I think... You know, these things do, I mean, it's a very, very heated political environment over here. So these things do get blown up. And I think that's what yeah. happened here. That 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 sounds like it. Uh, um, a, and Microsoft got a lot of uh, press for saying that they were going to take California's Consumer Privacy Act uh, and uh, apply it nationwide. Um, that does seem to me like uh, uh, taking uh, a lemonade and making lemonade out of it. Uh, uh, of course, they're going to apply it uh, nationwide. The idea that you would uh, tell people in Minnesota that they don't have the same rights that people in California have uh, is implausible as a, as a uh, corporate position. Uh, um, but they did get a, a fair amount of praise for it. It does illustrate that um, California or any big state really that's determined to make policy can make policy, but especially in the area of how do you handle consumer data. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Microsoft had already done this globally with GD, some of the protections, not 100%, but some of the core GDPR protections. And that's another big regulator. And yep. what I found most interesting is how the big uh, players are starting to line up uh, in terms of privacy or not. We heard earlier today, you know, Google is uh, struggling to put in place protections like this. Facebook doesn't like it because they basically sell people's personal in info. But companies like Apple and Microsoft that sell things and software and services are making privacy a selling point. It's a really interesting commercial dynamic to watch. Yeah. Uh, Matthew, uh, uh, there was a story about uh, how Amazon is, is recruiting more and more Chinese sellers and it's affecting the quality of the uh, products that uh, uh, they're offering. Uh, um, what's behind the uh, the Amazon effort to get more Chinese uh, suppliers into uh, uh, what we buy on Amazon? Uh, it cuts out the middleman mm -hmm. who is normally the person we think we're buying from who sources it from those Chinese uh, sellers. Yeah, okay, so it, 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 it does eliminate the uh, the value that brand names provide. Exactly. So if – and in the stories I recall, there was a guy that sold USB cables and he was an American guy and he was upset that Amazon had sort of gone around him to his supplier of USB cables and Amazon said, why don't you sell directly? We'll give you a channel to do it. And as consumers, we get it cheaper because we're not paying for this middleman's markup. Yep. Um, On the other hand, we probably get a lot of uh, goose down duvets that are really ducked down. Yes. And that was in the story too. I, I think the other thing though that is interesting about the story is there still seems to be among consumers a confusion around what the Amazon marketplace is. Right. And that is people think they're buying from Amazon – the Amazon marketplace is just like eBay. Yeah, you're it's buying like 10 from, or 20% max as, yeah. as Amazon. Yeah. You're not buying from eBay and you're not buying from Amazon. You're buying from this vendor that may be in some faraway manufacturing city in China. Yep. 
Okay, why don't we uh, uh, wrap it there? Uh, uh, thanks to Maury Shank, thanks to Matthew Hyman, thanks to Con Kitchen for joining us. This has been episode 288 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, I want to thank Anne1938 uh, for another review. We got a, a review, and this is. Uh, for once, a review that does not say, despite Stuart uh, Baker's uh, horrible political views, I still like the podcast. Uh, she says, uh, five stars all around. I work in IT. I am in school studying cybersecurity. This podcast is filled with information, which is incredible. The host is intelligent and easy to listen to. I I, I really am going to have to tell my wife this. Uh, this is the podcast I've been waiting for. I would love to hear more episodes on the psychology of cybercrime. Regardless, this podcast is great. Thank you so much. Much. Uh, and thanks to Anne 1938 for uh, not mentioning my retrograde political views. Uh, I have a message from Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, you knew sooner or later there would be an ad, but this is an ad for something you might actually want. Uh, there, we're going to do a free webinar on Tuesday, December 10, about the impact of the California Consumer Privacy Act and the EU's GDPR, uh, um, uh, but mainly I think uh, it'll be CCPA. Uh, it's a fast-moving area of the law, and we've got a bunch of our people who work on this who will be talking about it uh, on a webinar uh, Tuesday, December 10. Uh, okay, guest sec- suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter. Um, I, I'm following a uh, 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 sporadic reinforcement rule. If you follow me on Twitter, you have a 25% chance of actually seeing something about what we're going to talk about uh, on the next program, because that's all I've been able to muster the energy and time to uh, uh, put on there. Uh, And uh, please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 